Jesus, that is why we are here. I think at Christmas, it kind of starts to feel a lot like us and about what you do for us and how this time is supposed to make us feel. But tonight, Jesus, we come into this space for this time to turn our attention and to turn our affection to you. You are so worthy of it. You are worthy of honor and majesty and glory and authority. You are worthy of your name. They shall call his name Jesus and he shall save his people from their sin. Thank you that that's you. And so tonight, um, however we come, uh, skeptical, um, disillusioned, joyful, tired, Lord, would you meet us in this place just like you met us in the manger. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Uh, Well, welcome here. My name is Kyle, and I get to be one of the pastors here. And I just want to let you know, there's just an unusual amount of intentionality and forethought and planning that goes into our gathering. Um, And even with that forethought and intentionality, things go wrong, and we really like to laugh together and see things go weird. Uh, And to defend all of that, we have this little line called passion over polish. So uh, things are going to continue to be weird. And uh, I want to say thanks to my team, though. Uh, A lot of us have been here since about one today and some earlier. So thanks for making all that happen. Um, At Regen, we really perceive perceive ourselves to be a spiritual family um, chasing uh, intimacy and encounter with God. Uh, and trying to share that with as many people in blessing and witness as we can. And so, uh, like Steph said, we just really hope you get a little taste of that. Uh, So tonight, uh, we get to think a little bit about the Christmas story, and to help us do that, would you take a look at this video? Would anybody like to name that tune? 
Somebody said jingle bells. Stop it, I'm clear. I'll be home for Christmas. Can anybody name that vocalist? Bing Crosby. Can anybody name the year that was recorded? It doesn't count if you, what? 43. All right, you know, plus 50 points. Those are worth five shroop bucks. Good job. Um, that's 1943. Bing Crosby recorded I'll Be Home for Christmas. You know, uh, it was written and recorded to honor World, World War II uh, soldiers who would not be home that year. And the song is from their perspective as they dream after snow and mistletoe and presents and being with their loved ones. Within a month of the song's release, it charted. It charted for 11 consecutive weeks. It climbed as high as number three. And I'll Be Home for Christmas became the most requested Christmas song at USO shows. The GI magazine, Yank, uh, declared that Bing Crosby, quote, accomplished more for military morale than anyone else of that decade. I think it's an interesting side note that the British government did not let British soldiers hear this song at similar shows there because they felt uh, it, it demoralized them. It lowered their morality. Not, what is, it, is it morale? It made them sadder, not happier. Sort of. <laughs> I'll Be Home for Christmas has since been recorded by Perry Como, Frank Sinatra, Elvis Presley, the Beach Boys, the Carpenters. We're about to make a generational turn. Uh, Kelly Clarkson, Michael Buble, Pentatonix, Demi Lovato, and Lana Del Rey. And this song has remarkable staying power. This is the 76th Christmas, the 76th Christmas that I'll Be Home for Christmas has been heard on the radio. And it seems to me that this song's staying power comes from the way that it stirs in us some kind of longing. I mean, you hear those words, and it evokes something emotional in us, and it, and it tells us that something is missing, that something is missing. Now, some of us, this Christmas, what is missing is super evident. You're walking in grief, you're walking in disappointment, you're walking in heartbreak, you're walking in financial crisis. I mean, the, what is missing is super clear. A, a few weeks ago, Steph and I are Rating for Christmas. This was at the end of September, and I'm totally kidding. And uh, I'm totally. And uh, it was the, it was actually a little earlier, but only mid-November for us. And uh, we were, had travel plans, so we're decorating. This is really what's for us uh, just a, a really happy Christmas after a series of not happy Christmases. And we're decorating, and Jack's there, and he's laughing and getting into boxes, which makes this kind of significant and arduous and annoying task twice as hard. And uh, so he's there, I'm happy, we're doing this happy thing, and I find myself crying out of nowhere. And I realized a couple things have happened at once. This song is on, and just a few minutes before, uh, it had hung on our front door this leather strip of jingle bells that was always on my grandma's front door at Christmas time. And, and it meant Christmas to me. That sound, when we opened her door, meant Christmas. So I've just done that, and now, and I'm, and I'm weeping because I'm suddenly realizing, oh, this Christmas, something is missing. My grandma died in January of this year. I think when we're walking through a season where something is missing, that song, I'll Be Home for Christmas, just like right on the button. But what's interesting about it is that even if everything is great for you, if you this Christmas have everything you want and everything you need, 
we're going to pray for you because it's about to all go horribly wrong. And he's saying, uh, no, I'm just kidding, but it might. Um, uh, if everything is going well for you, isn't it interesting how that song still makes you feel like you're not at home? Isn't it interesting how that song still stirs up in, in us some kind of longing, this sense of not being at home? The song does that. Tonight I want to talk about a little bit about that inner sense of not being at home. And I want to do it through the lens of a story that Jesus told, a story about a young man who was far from home and who felt that stir of homelessness and longing and went home to a welcome that totally surprised him. I, I want to talk to us tonight a little bit about our true home and how the life of Jesus gives us a glimpse of that true home and how that true home is a place that we experience not just in our dreams, but that home is actually a place beyond our wildest, beyond our wildest dreams. And so I want us to look together tonight at a story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 15, and it gets set up like this. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. Now, this will become important later, but the story goes on to say, so Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, the younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. Our story begins with one of the greatest insults a child could ever give their parent. An insult that's even more intense in the classical world in which Jesus is describing. This son asks his father for his inheritance now before the dad is dead. It's as if the young man is saying, you know, dad, you living so long is really inconvenient for my hopes and dreams. So what I was thinking is you could just give me the money that you would give me when you die now. In other words, he's saying to his dad, your life is a little burdensome to me and I wish you were dead. Now, I think in our worst moments as teens, we had a lot of anger toward our parents. Unless, but uh, most of us at some point in our life, or at least some of us in this room, stormed up the stairs and as we were slamming our bedroom door, yelled, I hate you, and slammed it. Now, hopefully, none of us uh, have ever yelled, I wish you were dead and I could have your money uh, in, that, in that moment, but that's what this son has done. And somehow the father agrees to all of this. The father divides his estate. This would be a kind of process that was costly in its own way. And no sooner has the father handed off this money bag and put it into his youngest son's hand that the kid is just off. Uh, he gets the nearest Uber to the faraway city, uh, and there he spends uh, all of the money in what the Bible says is wild living. Now, that's Bible speak for cheap booze and cheaper women is what that's about. And so no sooner 
Has he gotten there? No sooner is he partying it up in the glitz and glam of the city that the young man finds out that he's run out of money. That purse, when it was laid into his hand, felt so heavy, and now, where did it all go? Uh, he's thrown out of a club, uh, and his new friends point and laugh. One thing leads to another, and a, a famine sweeps across a faraway place. So now he's penniless, he's homeless, he's hungry, and he ends up getting jaw, a job as a pig farmer. Now, you know this show, uh, Dirty Jobs, right? And, you know, what's-his-face goes and does dirty jobs. It's gross. Now, the dirtiest of dirty jobs in the Jewish imagination that Jesus is speaking to is working with pigs. Pigs are ritualistically unclean in addition to just, I don't know, being gross. And so here he is doing the most despicable and disgusting of jobs. He is overwhelmed by the stench. He is up to his knees in We don't really want to know what he's up to his knees in. And his hands are blistered and his skin is burnt and peeling and his back is aching from the relentless repetition of scooping and throwing and scooping and throwing and scooping and throwing. And then, in an instant, he just wakes up. It's almost like he comes out of a dream and he thinks to himself, I should have never left home. It sounded like a good idea at the time, but don't all ideas sound like a good idea at the time, right? And and, and for this young man, the glitz and the glam and the high life of the big city, it, it sounded so much more appealing and alluring than his quiet life, living with his father and doing just boring, mundane things. So Jesus says, when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, self, That was funny. At home, even the hired servants have enough food to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I will go to my father and I will say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me as a hired servant. I mean, the minute he thinks through all of this, the son drops his shovel and starts home. And in my mind's eye, I can see him making the long journey from the faraway place back to his father. And with every step along the way, he's rehearsing this little speech. Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worried to be called your son. Please take me on one of your hired servants. Every step along the way, he rehearses this. And he just can't get out of his memory the way that when his dad is mad, I mean really mad, his eyebrows touch and it's like there's just one big one up there and the last time he saw it was when he accidentally let the cattle out of the barn and he knows he just knows that's what he's going to see again and so he finally gets to his hometown and he rounds the bend up the little road to his father's house and what he sees next is absolutely stunning his father is running toward him For Jewish men, and for Kyle, we don't run. There's no running. Uh, For Jewish men in this time, there was no running because it was so undignified, which is exactly, exactly how I view running. Um, However, uh, at this time, if a Jewish man was going to run, he was wearing a robe. He wasn't wearing pants. He wasn't wearing shorts. And so to run, a man would have to hike up his robe to make it look like, I don't know, a little skirt. And so there he is, like, loping along, going to get his son. I mean, this son has never, ever, ever, ever seen his dad 
run even once in his life. And you have to stop and wonder, how, how did the father, how, how was he right there? I mean, he turned the corner and bam, there was his dad. The only possible explanation is that his dad was watching and waiting. His dad was watching and waiting, waking up every day, hoping, thinking, maybe, maybe this will be the day. So as his father draws near to him, he starts to give his rehearsed speech. He says, Father, I have sinned, but, but, but he can't, he's cut off. His father embraces him. He squeezes him so hard, the air just poof out of his lungs. His father lets go, and so he starts again, Father, I have sinned, but he gets cut off again because his father grabs his face and pulls it towards him, and he kisses either cheek, and as his dad lets go, he goes, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please let me in before he can even speak again. Now, this is getting annoying. I mean, he's rehearsed this thing. He'd like to say it. Jesus says that the father yells to a nearby servant. He says, quick, bring the finest robe. Bring the finest robe in the house. Okay, the person who owns the finest robe in the house, that'd be the father. Bring the finest robe. Get a ring for his finger. I mean, he didn't say go dig around in the ring drawer and see what you could find. No, it's not like, isn't there that scene in Parks and Rec when he's like, here are the rings. And she's like digging through this. There's like needles in it. If you don't know Parks and Rec, you've just never even met me. Anyway, there's this thing that happens. And so he, it's not any ring. It's not a class ring. It's not a Super Bowl ring. It, it is a ring that indicates belonging and authority in the family. It's a signet ring. It means he's part of us again. He says, go get him some sandals. Servants don't wear sandals. Servants tie sandals. Servants carry sandals. Servants don't wear sandals. And by giving him the finest robe, by giving him the signet ring, by giving him the sandals, he's saying, no, no, no. He's rejecting the offer. No, you're not going to be a servant. You're going to be what you are and what you've always been. You're going to be my son. And what happens next is even more surprising. Because the father throws a party. He says, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. And kill the calf that we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine is dead and is now returned to life. He's lost, but now he is found. The father throws a party. And neighbors are coming, and neighbors' neighbors are coming, and like great Aunt Mildred's second cousins, former roommates, quilting partner is there. We're wearing ugly sweaters, we're drinking the cocoa, we're rocking around the Christmas tree, and while all of this is happening, all of this to celebrate the son's return, something else entirely is happening. Because here's the thing. Uh, the original audience, as they heard Jesus told this story, when they said, yeah, I'm the kid, and he ran away, and now he's starving in some faraway city, they were like high-fiving each other. They were like, yes, he's getting what he deserves. And then Jesus kind of throws in a plot twist because he keeps telling this story about this radically generous father who welcomes this kid back into his home. And so now you think, oh, the story's going to end there. And if you were raised in church, I guarantee you, your memory of this story stops here. Yay, he's back. But Jesus keeps going, because remember, Jesus is telling a story not just to notorious sinners, not just to the broken. He's telling a story to the scribes and the Pharisees and the proud. So he goes on to say, 
Meanwhile, as in while they're partying, while we are singing Run, Run, Rudolph at the top of our lungs, meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. And when he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants, what's going on? Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. That's right, he doesn't have just one son, he has two. And the older son is the responsible, rule-following, never, ever, ever have I done anything wrong in my whole life kind of person. I mean, just annoying, right? I mean, I think that the older brother was shorter than the younger brother, and I think he was just trying to make up for it in some certain ways, but that's just me. He is shocked. Our British friends would say he is gobsmacked to find that his father is celebrating the return of his foolish, disobedient, good-for-nothing younger brother. I mean, this isn't a time for parties. This is a time for putting the ragamuffin whippersnapper in his place. But Jesus says, the older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him. But he replied, all these years I have slaved for you and never refused to do a single thing you told me. There's just the tiniest hint of a small violin, isn't there, playing in the background? All these years I've slaved for you. Okay. But he, And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours, not my brother, this son of yours, I said to Steph the other day, your son did that, and she said, I'm sorry, whose son? (laughs) Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, look, it's your son. You have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day. For your brother was dead and has come back to life. He is lost, but now he is found. Luke 15 is a story about you and me and every person who has ever lived. It's a story about our Heavenly Father, it's a story about our true home, and it all points to Jesus, who's sent by our Father to bring you and I back to our true home where we can be with him forever. Let me tell you a little bit about what I mean. This story is about you and me and everyone who has ever lived. It's pretty common to hear people say that the Bible is irrelevant It's pretty common to hear people say that the Bible reflects an age that just doesn't make sense to now. But here's the reality. The Bible is the most relevant document ever written. And every person you have ever met, willingly or unwillingly, is cast into the story that Jesus tells. Because this Christmas, you may identify with the younger brother. 
you are all too aware of your failures and faults, of your brokenness and your sin and your shame and your guilt. You may sense this Christmas a longing to come home, but you think you're too dirty, you're too messed up, you're too unclean. If anybody really, really knew about my past, it wouldn't work. You worry that you will never be accepted after your time in a faraway country. You worry that you will never be accepted back with open arms. But some of you this Christmas may identify with the older brother. And including him in the story seems like a surprising move, but there's actually more similarity between the younger brother and the older brother than you might think. And not just because younger brothers are bound one day very often to become an older brother. See, Jesus tells this story about the older brother, proud and arrogant and self-righteous. He tells it as notorious sinners are coming to him, and these proud older brother types, these Pharisees and teachers of religious law, are looking down on him. And the notorious sinners, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, so on, those are represented by the younger brother, but the Pharisees, the teacher of the law, proud and arrogant and self-sufficient and self-righteous, they're represented by the older brother in this story. And often when we think of the older brother, we think of like some sanctimonious church lady who judges us for our tattoos and who we always feel bad about cussing in front of on accident. Uh, One of my least favorite things about being a pastor is someone says a cuss word and then they like have this mini conniption of like apologizing for it. Um, But the interesting thing about the older brother type is while we associate them with religion, the sanctimonious church lady, the reality is our culture is chock full of sanctimonious church ladies. I mean, you can't throw a ball in any direction and not hit a sanctimonious church lady. I mean, just get on Facebook for five seconds, say anything out loud, and watch people argue with you. I mean, the reality is our culture is full of sanctimonious church ladies just wearing cooler jeans and wearing t-shirts that say, like, justice and inclusion, They're so kind of bought into kind of the secular progressive kind of storyline. Those are the new Pharisees in our culture. It doesn't come from the right. It comes from the left. Or at least it comes from the right and the left. The Pharisee represents the proud person who is self-sufficient. The the Pharisee represents the person who is bought into our culture's age of authenticity story. I get to define my life. I get to define my story and nobody from the outside gets to tell me what my truth is. There's just as much pride there. And the story addresses both. And again, the irony is that there's more similarity between the younger brother and the older brother. I mean, for example, do you notice that both the younger brother and the older brother really only want their father for what he can give them? The younger brother goes running off into the wilderness, into the faraway country, simply because he wanted what he wanted from his dad right then. But do you notice what the older brother says to his dad? You won't even give me a young goat. The reality is, especially in the Midwest, where Christianity is kind of the name of the game and part of the culture, the reality is is we're quite interested in God and what he can do for us and what we can get from him, but we're very disinterested in just being with God, which is the very thing that he offers both sons. He offers the younger son an embrace. He says to the older son, you've always been with me. Do you notice the similarity, too, that both sons leave home 
that in both cases the father has to leave the house to go get his kids? I mean, the younger brother comes walking off the path and there goes dad running after him and the younger son comes home. But the story ends, and by the way, it doesn't end with a resolution on this front. The story ends with with the father standing on the stoop begging his older son to come inside. And as far as we know, he doesn't. He's so caught up in his pride. He's so caught up in his arrogance. He's so caught up in his self-righteousness that he could never even give a glimpse of the humility to really come inside. This is a story about a dad leaving his house to go get his kids because he just wants his kids to be at home with him. So what is that home? What is the home? That's us. What is the home? His story is about heaven. It's about our true home. And Jesus, when he paints a picture of heaven in this story, do you notice that he paints it as a party, as a celebration? And listen, we know this. There are, you know, there's a party, and then there's like a party, you know? And this is the latter. This is a party that's happening in Luke chapter 15. See, what we find here in this story is that heaven is a place of celebration. We find that heaven is a place of provision, We find that heaven is a place of reunion. Heaven is a place of celebration. Heaven is a place, is a a party. It is not, here's your harp, here's your cloud, here's your white robe, now ride off into the eternal sunset forever. We'll see you on the other side. That sounds boring. No, heaven is a celebration. Heaven is a celebration of faithful people celebrating the fact that what they staked their whole lives on really was true. Heaven is a celebration. Heaven is a place of provision. There's a fattened calf slaughtered for the son. No more scraping by, no more starving, more than he could ever imagine. Elsewhere in the Bible, heaven is depicted as a feast. On this mountain, says the Lord, I will prepare a feast of the finest meat and the choicest of wine. Heaven is a place of celebration. Heaven is a place of provision. Heaven's a place of reunion. And it's not reunion with our loved ones that is primarily in view. This is a story about reun- reuniting with our Father. This is a story about being reunited with the lover of our souls and lives. And heaven will be good because I'll get to see my grandma again. Heaven will be good because our unborn children will we'll get to see them. Heaven will be good for those reasons, but those reasons will pale in comparison. And friends, I'm not excited about heaven for those reasons. I'm excited about heaven because Jesus will be there. I am excited about heaven because my faith will be sight. And all of the rest of it could go away. John Piper says that the people that will be in heaven are the people who would not be satisfied if they had all good things but not Jesus. See, it's about being reunited with our Father. It's about seeing Jesus face to face. The ring, the sandals, the robe, the fattened calf. It means nothing except for the son to be reunited with his father, to feel that embrace. That's what the father offers the older son. You've always been with me. Don't leave my side now. I think this is why we find ourselves stirred by the song, I'll Be Home for Christmas. Why we experience this sense of homelessness, because deep down in our most inner parts, we come, this song puts us in touch with the fact that we were made for a place and this is not it. 
C.S. Lewis says that if we find in ourselves a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, it must mean, he says, the probable explanation is that we were made for another world. When we find this longing inside of us as we hear, I'll be home for Christmas, here's the reality, we aren't home yet. But Jesus' desire is to take us to a home, not just in our dreams, but to a place beyond our wildest dreams. See, this is a story about you and me and everyone you've ever met. It's a story about our true home. It's a story about our father. The younger brother is cast as the sinful, broken, humble man. The older brother is cast as the self-righteous, arrogant, proud man. And the father is our heavenly father. We were made to be at home with God But something went wrong. Things are not the way that it's supposed to be. There's brokenness inside of me. There's brokenness in creation. There's brokenness in between, even in between us, even our most treasured relationships. What went wrong is called sin. And at Christmas, the father decides to do something about sin. He decides to close the gap that exists between us because of sin. At Christmas, the father decides to bring us home. He gives us a way home. See, The father in this story represents our father in heaven. And while this story is called the story of the prodigal son, prodigal, a word meaning excessively wasteful, just over, overdoing it to the extreme, really this story should be called the story of the prodigal father. A father who is wastefully excessive, who goes over and above to welcome his son home. And this Christmas, I want to introduce you to your prodigal father, of whom the scriptures say, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Our father is a generous God in the face of our greed. He is faithful In the face of our faithlessness, he is loving even when we dole out our love to lesser things. This is a story about you and me. This is a story about all of us, proud and humble and broken and self-righteous. It's about our true home. It's about our father who just wants his kids to come home. And this Christmas... He gives us a way home, and every Christmas he gives us a way home through Jesus, who is himself the way home. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life, Jesus says. Listen, the scriptures describe Jesus as the word of the Father. Jesus is everything that God has to say to us. And tonight, hear me, if you are the broken, sinful child stumbling home in shaming guilt, Jesus is the yell of the Father coming to get you and embrace you on the road. And if you are the arrogant, self-righteous, self-sufficient person who just refuses to go into the party to be proven wrong, let me tell you that Jesus is the Father's pleading for you to please drop the act and come inside. Jesus, the word of the Father, brings heaven to us. He shows us the way home because he himself is the way home. And whether we are broken and humble or or, or self-righteous and proud, whether we're the sanctimonious church leader or if we had, you, you think to yourself, I can't even trust a professional counselor to talk about my past because it's that bad. Listen to me. This Christmas, your father just wants you to come home. 
and not for you to say yes to Jesus tonight and tick a box and 10, 15, 20, 45 years later to say, hey, I'm good with you because on December 22nd, 2019, I said yes to that. No, Jesus wants to invite us into an eternal life that begins right now. Eternal life is a quality of life, not a quantity. And Dallas Willard says the goal of the gospel is to get people into heaven before we die. Heaven is so good, why wait? The younger son could have stayed home. For all we know, the, 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 the younger son could have stayed far away. The older son might have stayed out until he was blue in the face, my friends. Jesus is asking you to come home this Christmas to your dad and to his. And there are no three simple steps. There are no this. All we're looking for, all Jesus is looking for is someone to say yes. To reach out their hand, to receive the Father's embrace, to turn the doorknob and come inside. Jesus comes to show us the way home because this Christmas, all our dad wants is to show us a way home, not to a place just in our dreams, but to a place beyond our wildest dreams. Let me pray and Steph will lead us. Jesus, um, break through our pride and restore us in our pain. Where there is discomfort, would you um, bring only the comfort that you can bring? Where there is agitation tonight, would you bring peace? Would you bring your kids home tonight? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.